You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. Orchids are one of the most beloved plant groups known to humankind. What is it that makes them so special? How can we identify an orchid family member? And how do we differentiate between different types of orchids? Richard Bate is back to smash our preconceptions about the family Orchidaceae in this episode. You may remember him from episode 63 titled Biodiversity. He's an orchid-loving botanist from the UK who works with the Northwest Rare Plant Initiative, the Botanical Society of Britain and Ireland, and he's also a member of the Wildflower Hour team on Twitter. G'day Richard, welcome back to the show mate. Yeah, cheers, cheers. I think it's like my second or third time on, is it? We've had three chats, we had one chat yeah. to talk about the, the biodiversity episode, and then we had the biodiversity episode. Yeah, well, that's that's something that's over the last year or so has come more and more into the public conscience a little bit. I just hope, you know, for people just sort of listening, you know, I, I in no way give any sort of comprehensive viewpoint on all of that. Yeah, there's, there's people that have written you know, wonderful articles on biodiversity, but I don't think any of us truly understands the sort of the impact um, that we have on the world around us and sort of how intricate and complicated biodiversity is. I think you know it's all right going. Oh, I'm going to do this because it's it's better for the environment. But I think all of us we all need to think as as, as deep as we can in order to do that. And we talk about biodiversity, orchids themselves. I mean, they're they're immensely biodiverse. They only a lot of them only thrive in habitats that are very very special. So it was it was a bit of a no brainer for me to come on and talk about them because I, I love the things. So what, what do you want to know about them, Dan? Well, let's start with a nice, easy one. What is an orchid? <laughs> well, that, that's, that's, that's actually quite a difficult thing to, to <laughs> sort of answer, actually, because I guess if I give a really sort of straight answer, or orchids, they're a family of plants. So if you, you take a look at the way things are classified, you know, orchids as a group, we, we put them into what we call a family. It's sort of a, a broad sort of category of, you know, different genera and, and species that are all, they've all got sort of features that are common to them. It, it's funny, actually, because if you take a look at Linnaeus years ago when he was sort of sitting down and noticing patterns and things, it must have taken an awful lot of brain power to say, well, yeah, they, these things have all got features in common to them. So let's put them into one group. But all of these others have all got a load of features common to them. So let's uh, let's put them in that group. And then you've got those things there. And you very quickly go, oh, my goodness me. So that one's got four legs and, you know, that one's got four legs, but that one's got three heads and that one hasn't. It's it's amazing how sort of, you know, you take a look at the way things are classified, how things are put into groups and then sort of universally accepted. So with orchids, there's certain features to them within this broad range of sort of really kind of diverse plants, all of which are kind of accepted to be an orchid, if that makes any sense. So. If you have a look at uh, orchids generally, one of the sort of, what I'd say the key features of them is, is it's the seeds they produce. So orchids produce really, really fine seeds within a sort of a ribbed capsule, which you know, is, is another feature that's sort of, you know, common to them. 
And those seeds themselves have this dependence, usually, on fungi around them in the soil in order to germinate. So if you take a look at the structure of an orchid seed, it's it usually lacks something called a, an endosperm, which is what it uses to, you know, which what most plants use to, to germinate. Orchids lack that. So an orchid seed cannot really germinate unless a fungus sort of attacks it and sets up a relationship with them. If you sort of get away from that sort of seed and take a look at orchids themselves, they've got these elaborate flowers which are comprised of just three petals and three sepals. But one of the petals has got this really sort of elaborate form to it, and we, we call that a labellum. And that's, that's again, that, that's a feature of orchids themselves. And most orchid flowers will have a bilateral symmetry. So if you find the, the plane of the, the centre of the flower and put a line down it, the flower is usually symmetrical on both sides. And that's something we call um, zygomorphism. And that, that sort of, that, that structural sort of thing is, is what makes an orchid an orchid. There's obviously other things as well. Orchid flowers themselves, they usually rotate about 180 degrees. It's something we call resupination. And these sort of group of features is, is what makes an orchid an orchid. A, a lot of people will you know, say, oh, an orchid, an orchid sucker. You know, they're all showy and they're all you know, spectacular. I guess a lot of orchids are spectacular, but you know, there's so many orchids. There's so there's such a huge number of them. Uh, an awful lot of them you wouldn't actually notice were you to walk past them. The, the, the features of the plants themselves are still there, even in some of you know, the, the, the sort of incredible tropical broom, blooms that you think of as being, wow, that's a really showy orchid, right down to something that's small and green and you know, a couple of centimetres across. So that, that's really what an orchid is. It, it, it's just simply a, a taxonomic classification of a particular family. But as I said, the, the overwhelming majority of them have got features that are common to them. Yeah, absolutely. When I think about orchids, the first thing that I think of is really that labellum. Like that's really the first way that I think that I can identify an orchid. Can you tell us a little bit more about that labellum? Well, it it, it really takes on so many different forms, but yet it's, it's all so simple really. I mean... The labellum itself is, is is different to the other two petals. It's uh, it, it's it's sort of different shape. It's it's an, it's it's usually much bigger, and it's usually the part of the plant that's kind of the centerpiece. So, if you take a look at, I'm going to I'm going to choose a lot of European orchids because those are the things I've got on my mind. But if you take a look at something like a bee orchid, for example, you've got these three sort of purple sepals which almost form the background. You've got these two little tiny petals, which normally form you know, what you'd want to call the antennae of the flower. And then you've got this sort of rounded, folded, shaped and sort of highly coloured sort of main petal, which is much bigger than sort of the, the rest of the rest of the flower. And it's got sort of little dots and all sorts on it. If you take a look at the, the surface of it, the actual cells on it contain all kinds of sort of novel pigments. A lot of Ophrys species will produce blues. Blues are quite rare in, in, in you know, floral nature. But the actual shape of the cells themselves is quite flattened and it's quite squashed. So 
sort of labellum itself not only has sort of like a hairy sort of sides to it, but it's also got this incredible sort of almost mirror polished center to it as well. So the labellum itself, it's, it's, it's kind of difficult to describe really, because it's, it's kind of like everything, if you know what I mean. And the rest of it is just sort of like the side bit. But it's funny, if you take away any part of the orchid flower, it's sort of, it makes it look a bit wrong. So the whole thing is working in unison. So you, as I said, you've got this elaborate centerpiece with just a little bit of tarting up around it, but the, the flowers themselves are, you know, that they're so simple, but yet they're so complicated all at the same time. It's 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 a real feature of them that that stands out. And you know, if you take a look at uh, you know, some of the more simplistic orchid flowers, you will still see this this feature of having this this sort of main petal that sort of really outshines or does something differently to all of the others. Absolutely. I think that that is what makes the orchid family unique is that labellum. But are there any other characteristics that are sort of common throughout the family that can help us distinguish them from other plants? Well, yeah, I guess so. It, it depends kind of how how close do you want to look at them. I mean, this, this time of year, you know, I start getting tagged a lot on Twitter and somebody will say, oh, look, I've, I've found an orchid rosette in my garden. And sometimes I'll be like, oh, God, wow, you've got a bee orchid grown there. Or, wow, yeah, something's coming up. Uh, something with a winter rosette is quite easy to spot. But quite often I'll get tagged and somebody will say, oh, look, I've got an orchid coming up. And it'll be a bluebell or, or something like that. It's, if you take a look, I mean, both bluebells and, I don't know if you, if you grow bluebells in, over in Australia, but bluebells themselves, very, you know, sort of, it's one of those stereotypical British plants. They're, they're monocots, just like orchids are. So they'll have a fairly sort of similar sort of structure as they're, as they're germinating through the soil. But furthermore, that they're very closely related to them. So those features of, of the actual sort of leaf morphology are actually kind of seen in a lot of things that are quite closely related. So if we talk about how to recognise an orchid, some are very varied and some are sort of very easy, if that makes any sense to spot, especially the untrained eye. But you'll have some that don't have leaves, some don't even have chlorophyll, some of them aren't even green. So I think the, the easiest features to identify really are those are those flowers. So, I mean, if you if you're good at sort of keying things out, you can sort of key things out vegetatively. But the differences there are much more subtle. You, you you're sort of looking for sort of you know, oh this this is a monocot this this clearly isn't a monocot so that that's clearly not an orchid. So is this is this a, is this an orchid? Is it a, is it a lily? Is it is it something else? And and that that's really the way. to sort of spot them yeah good point because there are some sorts of stems that you can be like oh that's an orchid but then again that's not always throughout all orchids though no it's not and you're right in, in terms of the actual sort of features of a an orchid i mean we, we've got our sort of monopodial and sympodial uh, plants we'll go into that soon yeah yeah <laughs> well that, that that's that's something but i mean here in europe for example you know most orchids will sit within one particular group and have a set of features that sort of makes them sort of fairly easy to spot yeah vegetatively so if you take a look at the leaves for example you know, most orchid leaves are, are pretty fleshy yeah they're, they're sort of thick they've got sort of this sort of strong waxy cuticle on the surface most sort of european orchids will will overwinter so the the leaves will come up sort of like 
late November-ish. They'll sit flat to the ground and they'll sit there for months on end before the rest of the plant really starts doing anything. And you, you can spot very, very subtle differences in, in respect of the, sort of the shapes of the leaves, the colours of the leaves in terms of telling them apart. But quite often you, you'll see a sort of a, an orchid rosette on the ground and think, well, I, I can't really tell if this is a bee orchid or a sort of a, a late spider orchid or you're an early spider orchid because it's because they all look fairly similar to each other and they all grow mm. sort of pretty much alongside each other in, in you know, albeit in a sort of one area of the country for you know, a couple of those species. But as I said, sometimes actually telling them apart can be difficult, even if you know, you've got a sort of, well, this one normally looks like this and this one normally looks like that. So yeah, so telling them apart sometimes is, is, is kind of waiting for them to flower because they, they can be so difficult to spot. And as I said, they'll they'll have features which are sort of in keeping with 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 you know, with other groups of plants as well. Yeah, totally. So, where are they from? Well, do you know what? It's it's difficult to say that because orchids themselves probably originated about sixty five ish million years ago, and they. I mean, I've I've read so much on these over the years about. You know, sort of various competing theories about where orchids come from. That I think sometimes people just disagree based on, you know, oh, well, I've, I've always you know, sort of known it this way. My understanding is from from a paper I read fairly recently is they originated some some place around Asia about sixty five million years ago when everything was sort of undergoing a lot of an awful lot of change. If you go back, you're sort of not too far into history. Um, a lot of flowers as we recognise them now didn't really exist because flowers themselves sort of correspond with insects. So as sort of insects themselves, as as the roles of them became more and more important in terms of, you know, sort of pollinating flowers and the interactions between them, that's really when the orchids would have would have really started taking off. You know, most orchids have got pretty you know, pretty specialised roles. And a lot of them will have very, very specialised sort of interactions between them and sort of their, their pollinators, so to speak. I think if you take a look, I mean, I'm obviously just thinking on the fly here. If you take a little look here, I've mentioned this sort of 65 billion years ago thing. When we talk about taxonomy these days, we also talk about the genetics of things as well. So genetically, Orchids themselves probably go back a little bit further than that. But at what point did our sort of you know, forebearer actually become an orchid itself? I mean, you could use your sort of, your, what's the word I'm looking for? Your molecular clocks. You, you can use them and sort of identify things. If you take a look at orchids now, you can often use sort of you know, phylogenetic graphs to sort of figure out, oh, well, this is common ancestor of this, and this is common ancestor of that. I mean, there's been an awful lot of work done on this recently, but you're probably looking somewhere between about 100 and 65 million years ago for when, for when orchids arose, and they, they would have originated you know, sometime probably. Well, because this is the thing. When you, when you look at it, you know, a lot of stuff that we see around the world these days you know, a lot of things will be endemic to particular areas and some things will be common to the areas. So you can say, well, 
the continents started splitting 100 million years ago. So things that are common to all the, the areas around the world were, were clearly sort of widespread there. With the orchids, if you take a look at their distribution, they're, they're pretty much everywhere except for Antarctica. So if you have a look at where you take the features common to orchids, there's, there's various groups. So you can tell that, that lots of the subtropical orchids have sort of always remained out there. They've not really spread up here, but they probably would have never been here to begin with, if that makes any sense. So defining what an orchid is and how long they've been around is probably subject, is probably open to argument, according to what you'd have defined in the uh, the fossil record of what an orchid would have actually been and what would it have actually looked like, if that makes any sense. But probably probably slightly contradicts myself and come across as quite muddled there. Makes perfect sense, Richard. And we no, we actually talked about this a little bit in the biodiversity episode. Yes. But I guess that they're also endemic to pretty much everywhere, right? Yeah, everywhere except Antarctica. And I think mm. if you take a look at them, I mean, there's, there's, there's there are actually a few species of orchids. You know, I like to think of sort of like the, the, the new orchids and the ancient orchids. There are, there are some orchids that are literally, I mean, that they are really quite widespread. I mean, here, here in Europe, well, if you, if you take a look across the Northern Hemisphere, you will have you know, genera such as Cephalanthera, the Hellebrines. I mean, you've got Cephalanthera over in North America. You've got Cephalanthera here in Europe. You've got Cephalanthera going right through Asia and Russia. And if you draw a big sort of you know, ring You've got them sort of pretty much distributed, you know, all across, and I think Cephalanthera makes its way down into to North Africa as well. So you've got you know you've got this enormous distribution of this particular genus. So we, we obviously know Cephalanthera has been around for a, for a very long time. Coral rise is another one. The, the coral root orchids, um, Epipodium, is another one. These things are really sort of widespread throughout sort of the northern hemisphere. So you'd have thought that you know, these things would have arisen a long time ago, you know, and had had plenty of time to spread, and and would have had less distance to spread when they were sort of sort of actively going out their business and and sort of colonising, if that makes any sense. Whereas some of the the newer orchids we've got, I mean, um, some of the European Cirripedinae, uh, your bee orchids, and and that lot, they're they're, they're relative newcomers, and and they are sort of pretty much centred on. You know, the Mediterranean with sort of outliers, you know, across a, a few different areas that they're not really sort of, well, they're not present at all in, in you know, North America. They're, they're sort of present in sort of North Africa and present in uh, sort of Western Asia, but the, the majority of those species are right there. So going sort of back to your previous question about you know, what is an orchid, where do they come from and you know, how long have they been about? There's, there's various groups that have, have really not been around very long at all. And these things, you could argue, are in a period of active speciation at the moment and, and really sort of pushing on, whereas some of the, the old boys, so to speak, you know, some of them are, are sort of probably relic species in, in some respects, have been around for a long time. That you know, They're properly ancient and probably bear much more similarities to you know, their sort of hmm. you know, their forebearers. Whereas a lot of sort of the, the very new ones we've got now probably don't bear so much similarities to that that common ancestor, and I think you know, mm. if, as I said, if I came across a bit muddled on the previous one, I think a lot of what you decide makes an orchid 
kind of defines when you agree that they sort of came into existence. And you, when we talk about the classification rule and identifying one, I've talked about features that are in common with them. There are always exceptions to that rule. <laughs> there, there always are. And a lot of that is, is down to sort of the, the way that we profile things now genetically. So as I said, if you've, if you've got something that quacks and it's got wings, it's, it's probably a duck. But it could also be a goose and it could also be a swan. <laughs> now, they've all got features in common to them. But if you come across a duckbill platypus, you're, you're a bit confused because you're like, well, what, what on earth's going on here? That, that's, that's, <laughs> that's definitely not a, a duck or a goose or a swan. But we know genetically and we know from some sort of other taxonomical things that they're completely unrelated things. They just happen to have features common to them. So as I said, when, when it comes to the orchids, they, they, they can be quite challenging to find any kind of consensus on. Because a lot of people who sort of retake orchids or, or indeed any group of plants taxonomy seriously, they'll always have their own understanding and their own beliefs of, of what makes what and what is what. And <laughs> that, that in itself can be controversial in respect. Yeah, I'd love to do another episode just on that, but maybe we can go a little bit deeper another day. Oh, yeah, I'd love to. I'd, I'd love to talk about, you know, because I mean, my, my particular area, obviously, I'm based in Europe. Yeah, the, the, the closest tie I've got to Australia, for example, is, is my mum used to live there. She was £10 palm back in the you know, early 60s. You know, I'd love to come and see some Australian orchids and sort of put some of that sort of you know, knowledge I've got reading about them in, into actual you know, sort of uh, field knowledge. But a lot of what, what grows here in Europe is, is you know, it's, it's really quite unique to us. And what you've got out there is almost quite unique to you. And what grows elsewhere is unique to them. I mean, if you take a look at the orchids in the tropics, for example, yeah, around the, 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 the equatorial regions, I mean, they are very, very different to what, what, what you and I would, would recognise as an orchid. But then on the flip side, you take a look at those features that have, we discussed earlier and you realise that although they look very different sort of superficially, they, they are actually kind of the same thing. <laughs> Contradicting myself again, that's, that's orchids for you. <laughs> So tell me if I'm wrong here, Richard, but I read on Wikipedia that they encompass around 6 to 11% of seeded plants around the world. That must be species. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's, that's a really interesting one, actually. I, I love these figures because if, when, when I was a kid growing up, my reference textbook was something called Del Forge, and I've got about four or five updated copies. In fact, I've actually got one right in front of me here. It's actually in French. I can't speak French, but I can read it. I'm sort of like a French mute. So if you give me sort of big French textbook, I can read my way through it. But ask me to actually, you know, you know put my thoughts into French, and I'm, I, I'm, as I said, I'm completely useless. And it's interesting because his latest book has got over a thousand species in it. It's, uh, it's, it's, you know, just huge numbers of, of of species identified and described. And it's quite funny because. I mean, I, I, this is very much my own personal opinion, and I, I, I certainly don't want Mr. Delforge phoning me up and giving me a hard time in French because I wouldn't be able to argue back. But you take a look at the way that he split a lot of these plants down into species and inverted commas, and I, I just don't buy half of them. But then on the flip side, you've got another group of people who sort of try and lump everything together, and we talk about splitters and lumpers. So Mr. Del Forge, I mean, he is a splitter and he's, he's taken, in my opinion, splitting to an, an extreme level where it's, it's, 
it doesn't even make any sense. I guess it makes sense to him and his theory that everything's an act of speciation. But he will literally describe one plant, and he even describes some species as only growing alongside each other. And they've all got very, very similar species, very similar markings, very different, very similar shapes. They'll even have sort of similar pollinators. But because one pollinator's been observed to come onto another one slightly later, he might even be describing seasonal dimorphism and just simple variation between different populations and all sorts. As I said, there's a point at which you can look at things and say, well, how far do I take this? And you know, sometimes vocalising that is, is kind of difficult as well. So if you say that we've got this sort of species and whatnot, yeah, I, I, I get that. But I do wonder about the actual quality of those species, if that makes any sense. I think it's worth appreciating that there are huge numbers of orchids. I mean, there are huge numbers of you know, orchids worldwide. And that there are definitely, if you take a look at the number of genera, you know, each genus, how many of them are there? There's roughly a thousand. So if you think of that in terms of numbers, it's very difficult to get genera modelled, whereas species is sort of, mm. you know, you can really sort of lump things together. If you take a look at it, you've got a thousand sort of broad groups of plants, you know, broad genera of plants, that gives you an idea of you know, quite how many of these things there are. And they are, I mean, if you go to some parts of, as I say, South America, you go to the, you know, the, the sort of those, those areas, the orchids there are just so diverse and so huge in numbers. I think somebody told me once, there's 30,000 described species in Costa Rica. You take a look here, I mean, even if you follow Mr. Del Forge's act of, of a thousand odd here in Europe, you've got 30,000 in Costa Rica, you've got a thousand here. That just goes to show you the level of diversity that you've got in, in those two areas. But even if you were to lump them down and, and cut the numbers down and, and you know, um, do what some of the geneticists are doing at the moment and saying, well, this isn't sufficiently different from that one to warrant um, you're being a different species and you cut the total number down to sort of 50 or 60 odd, then you, you can still look at them and say, well, actually, you've got, you've still got this, this huge number of species relative to, to other groups of plants anyway. So yeah, so, so orchids definitely make up a huge number, but I think that the actual sort of percentage depends on sort of your real taxonomical boundaries and, 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 and what you think of everything overall that there's a lot of nonsense species described out there, and no doubt there are a load of cryptic species. Cryptic species are ones which you don't actually spot because they are sufficiently different under the skin compared to what's there. We, we've, I've long harboured the idea with a friend of mine, a guy called John Dunn. I think we, we, we may have a handful of cryptic species here in the UK. Um, there's a lot of noise at the moment that... One of the butterfly orchids here, we've, we've got two recognised species, a greater and a lesser. Believe it or not, they may be an in-betweeny. We've always believed that the two can form hybrids, but it would appear that that's not actually the case. And the ones that appear in-betweeny actually represent something called Platanthera mulleri, which has, has been described on the continent. But finding much information about this is, is actually quite difficult. And you'll have people saying, oh, no, I don't think that's a species. And then you'll have other people saying, well, we do think it's a species because it's sufficiently morphologically different. You'll have other people saying, well, we've done genetics on it and it, it looks like it is. And 
then you'll have other people saying, oh, we're not entirely sure we agree with that. And, and that's that's really sort of sums up the whole thing. Um, in terms of other species, I mean, we've we've got uh, we've got these things called fragrant orchids. I mean, they're fairly similar to to the, to the butterfly orchids. That all these things are, are specialised for Lepidoptera, you know, insects to come and pollinate. And we, we've we've got, I say, three cryptic species. You can kind of tell them apart, but we've got three cryptic species of fragrant orchids. I do wonder if there's another one that might pop up somewhere. We've got loads of marsh orchids, all of which all look completely different. You can go back and look at the same plant and on a different day and the damn thing looks different sometimes. <laughs> this, 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 I, I, I've got a love and hate relationship with, with marsh orchids. Uh, they're, they're known as Dax Riser. <laughs> every, every June I get absolutely spammed with, with millions of them. They're, they're, so, they're so difficult sometimes because there's so much variation. And they all hybridise with each other and form these massive complexes. Telling them apart can be different. And it's funny because if you actually take a look at the marsh orchids themselves, a lot of the concepts for you know, marsh orchid speciation are actually stabilisation of hybrid complexes. So you know, effectively what we see going on at the moment, all this, this massive thing, there's potential for, for more cryptic species to be among that lot. And then you take other things that I've mentioned, this, this, this orchid called Epipodium which is sort of spread you know, right across the Northern Hemisphere. I do wonder if this cryptic species with an epipodium and what we've got over here in the UK, or well, it hasn't been seen here since 2009. Well, actually, I think I actually saw one about six years ago, but it had been slugged, unfortunately. And uh, what I've seen has not come back since. But if you take a look at some um, epipodium orchids, there's such a range of these things that, and they all look sort of broadly, in fact, they almost look identical to each other. There's such a large sort of area, and we've seen this before in orchids, it does make me wonder, is what's growing out in Japan exactly the same as what's growing in you know, sort of Central Europe? And is, is, is that the same as what's in Northern Europe? And is, is that the same as what's over here? It's very easy to say that what we see growing you know, across, um, across Europe at the moment in terms of orchids has largely, rich, has, has largely spread from sort of Southern Europe over the last 10,000 years, apart from sort of various isolated populations. But you do wonder, has something been isolated in one particular area for long enough to be sufficiently different from another? Because something in Japan has not sort of, you know, has not come from Central Europe in the last sort of few years, so to speak. That, that will have been there for a very, very long time. And as I said, that, that, that's the thing when, when it comes to speciation of orchids. There's so many exceptions to rules and there's so many sort of unique and contrived situations. Plus, as I said, you, you can make different species out of three things that look almost identical to each other. But yet when you've got your offer species, you, you'll have some that are big and yellow and then you'll have some that are small and brown. And when you do the genetics on them, they look almost like they're, they're, they're almost identical genetically to each other. And you say, wow, how can this one be so expressive florally compared to this one? almost occupy a completely different niche in, or at least the way that we interpret it but yet still be the same thing that that's i think that's the problem when you say you know orchids encompass this huge number of you know, species uh, yes i guess they do and you the, the you know the, the diversity is, is plain to see but the actual number itself i mean that that will be very much open to interpretation and you know people's sort of taxonomical boundaries and concepts but yeah, there's, there's lots of them and they're very diverse. I definitely agree with that. And it probably is 
more. <laughs> yeah, to and to me, I mean, I don't see them as often as say asters. I mean, asters. Like, oh for man, me, those that's things are everywhere. Family. Gosh, <laughs> yeah. I need to get Josh Styles on. That that's his area. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, getting back on for an Aster family episode for sure. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure he'll he'll talk about them for um, forever and a day. <laughs> I mean, the, yeah. to be fair though, I mean, we, we joke about the Asters, you know, and and sort of obviously you know all, all that. It's it's funny because I, I sort of regard those things as sort of like the the other side, if that makes any sense. And I often <laughs> I, often, I often I often play dumb with. You know, a lot of a lot of those groups of, of plants. You know, one one thing I've, I've really sort of tried to get my head around here you know, the last sort of year or so is the dandelions. I mean, dandelions over here. I mean, we we've as a kid, I'd look at dandelion. Oh, that's a fat dandelion. Oh, that's a little dandelion. And I'd think that yes. a lot of what I was seeing was effectively just you know that one's stressed and it's growing in the, in in, the, in a dry habitat and that one's happy because it's. Uh, it's growing in the middle of a marshy lawn, but not at all. I mean, there are dozens of dandelion species here in the UK, but I'm quite good at recognising the main groups of them. But when you start looking at sort of these really sort of fine features of them, this goes back to what I was saying previously about speciation. A lot of dandelions, they're apomics. So you're going to get sort of very, very subtle differences between different species. You know, has anybody looked at all the dandelions and done this mass genetic testing of them to say, well, this is this, this is this, this is this, this is this, this is this. Um, I know there has been some genetics on them, but maybe not to the extent and degree to actually say, no, this is definitively this and this is definitively that. So again, with your asters, yeah, they're a hugely broad range of them. They're everywhere. They're, they're really spectacular. Asters are more sort of, I'd say they're more generalists than the orchids. Mm. Asters, I think, have got more of a sort of a scattergun approach um, towards things. But you <laughs> could say the same about the orchids. You could say that the way that they fling billions of seed up and try and spread it everywhere is, is kind of, it's either specialised or scattergun, depending on what way you want to look at it. It's, nature's always got a way that, that sort of amazes and contradicts itself all in the same way. I guess one of the ways that we can split orchids into two groups is we can define them as being monopodial or sympodial. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, sure. I think, I, I don't know if you've got any monopodial orchids in Australia. I mean, I'd imagine you have. This this where sort of my knowledge of particular areas runs out. But monopodial orchids, anybody who's ever been to a greenhouse and, and seen a vanilla orchid, I mean, they're, they're wonderful things. It's like this massive long snake. That's a monopodial orchid. They they grow from a single bud, which basically grows longer over time. And it's not necessarily associated with the dieback. So your growth basically becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm. So I mean, you go to some I mean, you go to like down to Kew Gardens in London, you, you'll have these massive vandas, these enormous they're like snakes. Or at least they did last time I went down there. I haven't been to Kew in about eight years, believe it or not. I need to sort that out. You take a look at these uh, you know, these enormous things. I mean, they must be decades and decades old. And it obviously makes a lot of sense when you're growing in sort of a rainforest to sort of to grow like that, if that makes any sense, because you've got this sort of, you can form this big sort of fleshy sort of thing. You can grow up the side of a tree that's probably going to be there forever and a day. And just mind your own business. It's your effect of putting all your eggs into one basket and that's the way you grow. Um, 
most orchids that I think people will be familiar with will be the sympodial orchids, which is where you've got a new growth sort of on one end and you've got an old growth on the other. And the old growth, uh, certainly among sort of our European orchids, is often dying back. You can have an, a rhizome. And so I mentioned Cephalanthra earlier, that, that will grow in a rhizome. So you've got this sort of this this sort of big root structure. But what's really important with with an orchid is, is that it will always have to have main budding area. So even your epipactus, it will have a nose to it. And that will be the point at which the rhizome sort of splits from. And quite often you'll, you can have multiple buds coming off the rhizome. So it'll, it'll bud, bud off and form this sort of big network. But I guess if you look at your classical orchid, the, the, the word orchid, by the way, I maybe should have mentioned this earlier. An orchid itself is the, the actual reference comes from your classical European orchid, which has something called a, a pseudobulb. And that's the pseudobulb itself is the, the bud. And when the orchid starts to grow, your orchid will, will grow off the old bulb, put its head above ground and, and do all its business. You'll get a rhizome that spreads from it, sort of a temporary rhizome, so to speak. But then you'll get a new bulb forming off the side of it, sort of the new bud. And then once that's sort of you know, sufficiently developed itself, the old bud will die back. So each year, effectively, the plant clones itself, if you may. Mm. but some years it'll provide it'll actually grow two buds and some species actually specialize in doing that and there's, there's two that have come to the top of my head immediately one is ophrys it's called ophrys bombylophora um, which is a really good strategy because most ophrys orchids cannot propagate without a pollinator so and they're, they're usually quite short-lived so if you've got your, your bulb living in the ground which will often last sort of two three maybe five years before it eventually runs out of steam and dies out. It only clones itself once each year, and it's only quite rarely that those plants will actually create two buds coming off them. Ophrys bombylophora will actually do will actually create two for each, each cycle and generation. So effectively, it can self-propagate from a single plant vegetatively. That, that's quite a clever strategy. Some of the Serapius orchids will do the same thing, but... Those orchids, they're all sympodial. And as I said, you, you take a look at your, your classical orchid. If you actually pull them out of the ground, sort of halfway through their life cycle, as, as a lot of people would have done in the old days, out of sheer curiosity, or people do these days because they want to dig them up and make ice cream out of the roots. Um, you, and when you pull them up, you've got these two bulbs that hang down. Well, orchis means testicles. So that's, that's the reason why orchids <laughs> are called such. It, it's effectively a reference to... The, the two the two the two bollocks hanging down so to speak <laughs> so that that that's that's what most people will regard as an orchid and what most people identify with when when an orchid is mentioned so that's your that's your sympodial orchid i had no idea about that <laughs> this is the first <laughs> time hearing about this <laughs> yeah well it, it's funny because ask asking me to talk about orchids sort of off the cuff and on the fly so to speak sometimes i sort of have problems expressing what i'm going to say because somebody asked me about an orchid literally this this wall of information just flies into my head and it it, it's funny because as with all of these things orchids are in many respects exceptions that prove the rule you talk about monopodial and sympodial i mean my as i said my experience monopodial orchids is is simply in greenhouses so yeah 
yeah, we, we, we will never see them out in the wild out here. But the sympodial ones, as I said, you know, you've got you've got so much variation there among just this particular classification. If you pull one of those things up, you know, sort of your, your typical sort of Orcus purpurea, these massive great you know, bulbs hanging off them, and then you go and take a look at, you know, you pull up a Epipactus in a woodland, you'd think they're completely different. But if you actually go right down to the very bare, you know, very bare facts of, of what they are, those sort of structures that, that make them what they are, although they're quite different and they work differently, there's an awful lot of similarity there. I mean, yeah, they're, they're, they're miles apart in terms of, you know, sort of uh, you know, their, their relationship to each other, but we, we've just put them in the same category. And there's another completely separate category, as I said, on the other side of the world, which is which bears no relationship to either. Um, orch- orchids are funny old things, Dan. They really are. Yeah, absolutely. So they also come in a couple of different typical growth habits beyond just monopodial and sympodial classifications. So they can also be epiphytic and terrestrial. Yeah. So, I mean, it's really interesting that we, this, this, this is funny. I never thought of orchids in the UK as ever being epiphytic in, in any particular way. And then a few years ago, somebody, a Portuguese friend of mine on Facebook, put a picture up of a load of early purple orchids growing uh, in a tree in, in, Port- in Portugal. And I, I was gobsmacked. And I thought, no, that, that's, that's unbelievable. You, you've got these, the, these orchids are effectively growing in the moss in a tree. That, that is epiphytic. That, that's incredible. It's not as if there's, there's loads of soil up there. So anyway, I, I've thought about this for a long time. I have seen proper examples of, of epiphytic behaviour in orchids here in the UK. One is, there's, there's a place called Clyburn Moss. It's, it's, up in, um, it's up in the north of Cumbria. It's, uh, it's, it's basically a, a woodland plantation that, that, that backs onto a bog. So you've got this big forest bog. You've got a little orchid that grows there called Les Twey Blade, Neotia cordata. And this little thing grows kind of in the top layer of the you know, the leaf litter and some of the some of the sort of loose soil towards the edges of some of the bogs. They're tiny little things, they're quite difficult to spot. And about seven or eight years ago, I found this fallen tree and growing in the moss on the top of this fallen tree was one of these lesser twain blades. And I remember looking at it, there was no soil there, nothing. It was just moss growing on the surface of the of the the wood, the tree, the tree was actually still alive, uh, which which blew my mind because the tree hadn't been down long, and this thing was growing in the moss on top of it. I thought, wow, hmm. that is proper epiphytic behaviour. But I have actually seen early purple orchids doing the same thing up on Hutton Roof. You've got loads of limestone boulders, and sometimes the moss that grows on top of them, even out in the open, is, is quite thick. And I, I've seen early purple orchids growing in the top of the moss, and it's it. It, it's phenomenal. There are other examples that I've seen posted where, as I said, they're, they're, they're displaying this kind of behaviour. And then you talk about your terrestrials. Yeah, I guess they're, they are effectively terrestrial orchids. They are growing there. But because of the way the orchids form these, these fungal relationships with things, they're not necessarily so reliant on 
you know, the root structure of an orchid actually absorbing things. I, I would imagine many orchids can demonstrate epiphytic behavior if the nutrient exchange to them works well enough with their fungal partner. So your typical epiphytes have obviously got completely different structure. You know, they've got they've got roots that sort of grow into things and latch onto things and yeah, they're they're effectively opportunists in many respects. But orchids, it's funny, people often divide things into these particular groups. I'm pretty sure if you took your, your average orchid epiphyte and stuck it on the ground in, a, in an area where you know, it was happy enough, it, it would grow quite happily terrestrially, even though some plants will have particular adaptations that make them better for, for one particular area compared to another. I mean, we, we talk about rainforest. We, we do have rainforests. Even here in the UK, we have rainforests. We've got them in the in the Western Lakes. You'll you'll have plants that have got specific adaptations to have these sort of really sort of wispy root structures and and grow sort of almost ephemerally in particular areas. But as I said, it's I I I often see that that sort of split between epiphyte and terrestrial has, has been quite blurred in many respects. Even though you will classify some as being this is an epiphyte and this this is you know this is this is terrestrial. So it's sort of whatever works for the substrate that they want to live in. Exactly. Whatever works for it. And yeah, mm. we, we talk about orchids as being super specialists. They will grow where they're happy, as as will many plants. One of my friends, um she she's on Twitter, Sophie Lagill, she's she's got a, a a thing dedicated towards serious sort of pavement botany. And it's it's interesting what will grow in the cracks on a pavement. Because is that is that epiphytic behaviour or is that terrestrial behaviour? It's it's very difficult sometimes to say, well, yes, I guess it's uh, it's it's terrestrial behaviour because sometimes stuff doesn't get the chance to build up in between the cracks in a pavement. It is very similar mm. to being high up in a tree, growing in between the, mm. the branches of something. It's, uh, as I said, the, the lines can be blurred there sometimes. That's really interesting. I guess another way that we can talk about orchids or another type of orchid methodology is that they can be saprotrophic. What does that mean? Well, th- th- that's really interesting because <laughs> I say when I grew up, if I go back sort of 30 years to when I was a little boy, I remember picking up orchid you know, pick up textbooks and they would say this orchid is a saprophyte and a saprophyte is effectively something that feeds on decaying matter so you know if a lot of a lot of fungi for example they're saprophytes you've got a load of decaying leaf litter something comes and lives among it and, and not you know, sort of scoffs all the uh, all the nutrients that are there i've got to say even as a kid even when i was eight years old i remember reading that and thinking I don't really buy that. It's most orchids now, and I'll talk about a traditional, you know, a, a traditional saprophyte. There's one called um, Limadorum abortivum. It's uh, if anybody listening to the podcast hasn't given up yet, um, anybody who's listening, go and look <laughs> it up on um, go and look it up on Google, or have a look at my Twitter feed. I've posted a few over the years. That's an orchid that was always believed to be a saprophyte. It grows in sort of leaf litter areas in, in Mediterranean Europe. It's since been proven that it's not a saprophyte 
It's actually something called a mycohetrophyte. But this is where the shades of grey come in. And this, this was if some of the, some of the parts of this podcast where I've struggled to articulate myself properly. It's because it's not black and white with orchids. You take a look at some. Do you know what? I've got to get this in. You've got some amazing orchids over in your area. You've got uh, Rhizanthella, and the one that I think immediately is is Rhizanthella gardnerii, which is the it's the one that grows in the um, the broom bush vegetation and flowers underground. That's not a saprophyte; it's mycohetrophyte. What it does is it it grows off a relationship with the fungus in the soil, so. Effectively, the, the broom bush has got this uh, fungus growing around the roots, which basically has a, a symbiotic relationship. The orchid will then tack onto the side of that fungus. And th- this is, again, this is where the shades of grey come in. Historically, it was always believed that the orchid had a symbiotic relationship with the fungus, as in the orchid met the needs of the fungus and the, the fungus met the mm. needs of the orchid. Well, that's not always the case. A lot of orchids are actually parasites, proper parasites. So what they do is they effectively piggyback off the fungus, nick all its nutrients, nick water off it, and don't really give the, the poor fungus very much back. <laughs> so is it, a, is, it a, is it symbiotic or is it actually parasitic? So we've gone from saprophyte to symbiont to parasite, and, and that's the way that we look at a lot of orchids. So... We've obviously, as I said, we've got your, your eyes on Thella. The, the fungus that it grows off, oh gosh, what is it off the top of my head? Thanatophorus is what it grows off. So you've got your Thanatophorus growing on your broom bush, and you've got your eyes on Thella growing off the side of your, your Thanatophorus. The relationship there, it, it's actually open to interpretation how you classify that, but it's definitely not a saprophyte, even though historically, because it's growing in leaf litter, people thought that these things were saprophytes. So that's kind of where we are. So let's go back to our um, let's go back to our Limidorum. Limidorum takes it to another extent. The orchid itself doesn't actually get 100% of its need from the, from the fungus itself. Limidorum off the top of my head grows off Russulaceae fungi, uh, Russula. People know them as, uh, there's one that grows here in the UK called the Sickna. It's this little bright red mushroom. It looks very appealing, but if you eat it, it's, it's, it, would, it would give you a very, very bad day, hence its name. But um, yeah, your you Limidorums grow off that. And it's funny because if you, it, it's Limidorum, the name is Limidorum abortivum, as in the leaves are aborted. But if you actually take a look at Limidorum, it's actually got some chlorophyll in it, and it does still have vestigial leaves. And amazingly, Limidorum actually has some requirements off the chlorophyll it's still got in it so i've always looked at limidorum and thought is this something in an active stage of speciation ergo it's making that transition from you know chlorophyll containing plant to something that one day will be completely and utterly dependent on fungi or is it a super specialist that grows in a particular niche where it's just got enough light to sort of get a bit of chlorophyll energy through and if the fungus, for some reason, wanes a little bit, the plant can keep itself tiding over. Or, or, or as I said, it, it, it's, it's, it, and it, yes, it gets, gets the rest of its needs from the fungus, which may wax and wane over time. Or, or, 
so as I said, it's, it's funny. You look at it, is, is it actually going in a particular direction or has it found its particular niche? And it's, it just uses the chlorophyll as a backup from time to time. It, it's a really funny old way of looking at it. And you know, I, t- I love I love mycoheterophytic orchids. I mean, there's, there's so many examples of them. You've got your gastrodiums over in Asia and up into Russia. I've mentioned epipodium already a couple of times today. That's something called the ghost orchid. It's a bit of a botanical holy grail. Another nod to John Dunn. Um, he found one in the summer over in the Pyrenees last year. I found one in the Pyrenees years ago. I found one in Japan years ago. I think I found one here in the UK a little while ago, but I wasn't being given very much to work with, so I'll, I'll always wonder, was it, wasn't it? But with, with, with your epipodiums, I mean, those things are so dependent on the fungi. And what's more is they have such a long life cycle that you say, wow, gosh, this thing is so super specialist. That is crazy. I guess that's the reason why it's so rare. But if you think about it in, in respect of you know, us lot, the habitats that these things grow in are incredibly rare, but they're sort of rare now and weren't sort of a few thousand years ago, if that makes any sense. So what we look at now as being a sort of super specialised adaptation was would have would have come to fruition for, for a good reason. And in many respects, may have been a great strategy um, before lots and lots of change came along. So, yeah, or- orchids, I mean... Not necessarily sacrifice, but we can argue as to whether they're parasites or that they're actually growing off the off the fungi themselves. It's 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 a funny funny old world when you're an orchid and when you're trying to classify one. Yeah, wow. So and they can even sort of like switch between the different functions and stuff too. That's fascinating, man. I've never heard of any of that before. Yeah, another one that does the same is um, is the coral root orchid, something called coral coralizer trifida. And if you take a look at coral root orchids in general. That there's different amounts of chlorophyll in between them. I mean, you do sound genuinely fascinated, Daniel. So let's talk about another genus. There's one called Cephalanthra. I mentioned Cephalanthra earlier. There's Cephalanthra in North America. There's Cephalanthra in, in Europe, down into North Africa, and it grows over into, into, into Western Asia as well. And there's lots and lots of Cephalanthra species. I like to divide Cephalanthra into three groups. People divide them into all sorts of different groups, but I like to think of three different groups. You've got your spurred cephalanthras, which are sort of like your Mediterranean cephalanthras. They've got typical cephalanthra shape, but they've got a little spur coming out the back of the flower. Those are, they contain chlorophyll and they are highly dependent on mycorrhiza. You've got your non spurred cephalanthra, which obviously give typical cephalanthra shape, but they don't have a spur. And it's funny because some of them are heavily reliant on them. There's, there's one that grows here called uh, the white hellebrine, Cephalanthra uh, damasonium. That is hugely dependent on mycorrhiza in the early stages of its growth. And then as the plant gets a lot older, it's not quite as dependent on it. You've got another one called Cephalanthra longifolia, which has got an enormous distribution. I mean, huge distribution. I mean, it's, it grows... It grows all across sort of the UK, right down into into sort of I say North Africa, right across into into Western Asia, and it's funny because over here in the UK, where it is a rare and, and sadly declining plant, in parts of in parts of Europe, it, it, it it's it's really quite common and it's very happy, and it's it's sort of mycorrhizal needs are not quite as high, 
So we've, we've, over here, it needs an awful lot of support and help, whereas in other areas it doesn't. So that's obviously my, my second group. But if you go over to North America, there is actually a species of Cephalanthra, Cephalanthra austinii, which is completely without chlorophyll. The plants, are, are, they're, they're ivory white in colour, and they are absolute obligate mycoheterophytes. And they grow in particular kind of dense woodland in, in patches across Canada and you know, the northern part of North America. And if you take a look at these things, you're like, wow, you've got one group of plants which is sort of like less reliant on these things. And then this other group over here, which is totally reliant on them, but they're all encompassed in the same genus. And you take a look at that variation across that group of, of plants and you think, wow, that is, that's bonkers. You know, how is that? How have they split off in so many different directions with so many different sort of nutritional requirements over probably quite a short space of time? It, it's, it, it is fascinating. But as I said, that Cephalanthra in North America was always believed to be a saprophyte and it's now understood to be a, a mycoheterophyte. And as I said before, is it actually a mycoheterophyte or is it a parasite? That's a really good question. Uh, so it's, it's, it's either or both. So I guess orchids are really playing a lot of different ecological roles above the soil and beneath the soil. But can you speak on pollination briefly for us? Yeah, sure. So the, this is another thing. We, we talk about pollinators. With, I mean, the thing is, is, you take a look at a book on orchids and yeah, a big fat book explaining all these different species that do all these weird things. We've talked about the variations so far and what orchids do. And I mean, there's so many things I've, I've not even mentioned. Yeah, the, for example, there's, there's orchids where yeah, there's a little little bog orchid that grows in the UK where an adaptation it's got is, is that it actually grows little plants at the side of its leaves, just like a spider plant, which drop off and become new plants. So you've got this sort of meristemic tissue on the edges of the leaves that sort of clones itself. And you go, that's the most incredible adaptation. It really is. See, we talk about pollinators. The adaptation among orchid pollination is unreal. And we, 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 we link that back to we were discussing the labellum earlier. Um, do you know what I'm going to do, Dan? It's, I'm going to put a, put a few photos on my Twitter feed when, when this podcast goes, goes live. And, and sort of try and give people a sort of a visual representation of what I'm talking about. Because you meant, I've mentioned the, the, the labellum as being sort of the centrepiece of an orchid flower. You've got lots and lots of different ways in which an orchid is trying to lure somebody in. So you will have your, your nectariferous plants, which obviously attract things due to scent. So let's talk about our butterfly orchids. These things have got massive great spurs, loaded with nectar. If you actually look at a butterfly orchid spur, hold it up to the light, you'll see that it is absolutely juiced with, with wonderful bounty for, you, for your pollinators to come and drink. And what's really phenomenal is, I don't know if you know the smell of honeysuckle, it's this beautiful sort of dense sort of honey scent. Honeysuckle really comes on at night. In the daytime, you may be able to smell it. These orchids will do exactly the same thing the scent will come on strongly at night and they'll attract these moths to them. They've got these big, long spurs. So the, your moth with its big, long you know, proboscis can go in and, and go and have a good old, good old feed on it. That's the way the plant will get you to come in and have a go at it. But I have personally observed 
orchid beetles, which are, are actually, they actually eat orchids. I've actually observed the orchid beetles themselves coming in and actually pollinating those, those flowers. Which is bonkers because you, you talk about the specialization, but that plant itself, because it just smells nice, it will just randomly attract things. So although it's got this incredibly specialized adaptation towards its particular moth or group of moths, it, it will sometimes just sort of get others in just for the party. So that's, that's one way of getting it. The other way is via deceit and the deception that orchids play is, is quite unreal. So the famous one is, is, is your bee orchid. And what your bee orchid does is its main labellum is folded and coloured into a shape that mimics a bee. What effectively happens is, is your, your inexperienced male bee comes out, flies around, looks around and goes, oh my goodness me, there's, there's a beautiful, voluptuous female bee sitting on that leaf over there. I'm going to go and show her a good time. So he'll come and jump on it, attempt to mate with it. It's, it's a process we call pseudo-copulation. And that action of effectively your sex doll labellum pollinates your flower because it's you know, transferring uh, pollen you know, between flowers or um, on the flower itself. Now, bee orchids themselves, although they're observed to have pollinators in Europe, here in the UK, the majority of, of bee orchids will be self-pollinated because that particular plant has an ad- adaptation where it drops down. But if you take a look at particular bee orchids, just pick off the top of my head, you know, a fly orchid, Ophrys insectifera, that's pollinated by uh, Svestai wasps. So it, it's these things will have particular adaptations to them, and that, that's pure deceit. But they do take it a step further. Some, some of these plants will actually produce pheromones, which are very similar to the ones that the insects themselves produce. So you take a look and think, wow, you've got this deception that it can actually visually fool something but some of them will take it to a whole new level of of going down to to mimicking the smell and you know sort of you know the feel of them you know they'll have sort of hairs on the side which you mimic the hairs on a on a bumblebee it it really is quite phenomenal the way they do that but it doesn't end there there's actually there are actually orchids in there are actually orchids in in you know in the tropics which will use hummingbirds to pollinate them and some of them will actually, you know, fool a hummingbird to coming over, you know, simply from the, the nectar it's producing. But some of the orchids are so devious that they actually mimic the plants that the hummingbirds usually visit. So <laughs> your hummingbird actually gets confused. And it's, um, I mean, if you know any sort of tropical greenhouse orchids, you'll, you'll be familiar with uh, Epidendrum. But the one I'm thinking of is something called Epipendrum radicans. It's this big orange thing. And that actually looks very similar to these two. It's not actually just one. It's actually two unrelated plant species that are actually you know, producing nectar. See hummingbirds <laughs> flying along. Your, your coppery-headed emerald will be flying along, sort of going, oh, ah, whoa, cool, I'll go and get some lunch over there. It'll jump on it and start sort of probing away. And think, hang on a minute. There's nothing here. Oh, I've got to dig a bit deeper. So your hummingbird is effectively sticking its head right into the central pollinia and all over the, you know, the organs of the plant. You're having a good old rub, pollinating it, going in between different plants, 
getting frustrated before eventually it thinks, oh, there's nothing here, I'll bugger off. But what's the chance, what, what's it going to think next? Is it going to think, oh, that plant over there, that's, that, that's not got any nectar in it, or is, is, that, you know, is, is, that, is that empty? So it's almost as if the orchid is, is making the most out of another animal's frustration at not being able to find its nectar. That that is devious. That that really is quite quite <laughs> incredible. So yeah, success based on lies. Th- there are other orchids that that use nectar to seed as well. I've mentioned your classical orchis species. A lot of those nectar to seed. They've, they've got very bright um, flowers, which are all big and frilly. They've got hairs on them, which you know, entice various. Pol- they've got various shapes on them which entice certain pollinators to come and visit them. And they'll have a spur, but there's no nectar there. So you, pollinators will come in and have a good old probe, go looking for it. And as I said, it's, it's almost that frustration of not being able to find something and enticing something in with this promise of something that, that gets them in. I mean, ne- nectar deceit is not, you know, it's, it's not limited to the orchids, but the way in which they do it is, is pretty... As I say, it, it, it's almost it's almost nefarious. It's it's very very clever the way they do it. Evolutionary adaptation. <laughs> yeah, so it's like kind of like what you said about the politicians lying to get the votes. <laughs> yeah, totally. That they, they lie to get the votes, and what's more is is they've got this promise that come here, come and come and take nature's bounty, which we're offering to you. you, you <laughs> your insect comes in, sticks its voting card in the top of it. And then Lee's scratching his head going, hang on a minute, this guy's success is, is based purely on lies. They are, <laughs> it's very politician That is funny. So, Richard, do you have a favourite orchid? Oh, I've got loads of favourite orchids. <laughs> so if you ask me from day to day, I'll probably change my mind. Yeah, I mean, I love bee orchids. I mean, those things are wonderful. I'm lucky enough to have some growing in my lawn. We've, uh, I've, we had a small bee orchid rosette in the lawn when I first moved in here, because I've been living here now 18 months. We had one in the lawn and it's growing slightly bigger. The The lawn I've got here is basically a big extension of the limestone grasslands of the area we live in. And previous owners here kept the lawn really short. So there's a few things sort of clinging on here and I'm just sort of letting, letting them grow out. Um, there's a lot more you know, spikes coming up in the lawn than, than, than came up last year. But um, back in South Warwickshire, where I first saw a bee orchid, my mum and dad's back garden. I mean, we literally, I think we had like 20 of the damn things last year. So my parents came up for Christmas and my dad bought this big bag. I said, what's this? And he goes, oh, I've lifted a few bee orchids out of my lawn for you. So I've put them in a different area of the garden and hopefully they're going to they're gonna just sort of propagate. They're sort of big old tubers. I mentioned earlier, some of them are quite short-lived. It's funny, if you've got an aggressive mower and you've got a few bee orchids growing in your garden, they keep mowing it grass flat each year never giving these ch- things the chance to flower the bulbs themselves will grow absolutely enormous like literally they'll be like jersey royal potatoes huge thing Norm- normally a- an orchid bulb is about the size of a small coin so yeah these things you know, these the bulbs on these things are enormous and once they get to a certain point they almost don't run out of steam anymore they almost become proper long-lived perennials I mean, I mean, some some orchids will literally be monocarpal. They'll, they'll get to the point where they'll, they'll they'll be able to flower. They'll flower, and that's it, game over. So that they're entirely you know dependent on your know, seed set. But yeah, bee, bee orchids are among my very favourites. That they are they're wonderful things. They're full of colour and delight. 
you know, we, we live in fairly sort of uh, impoverished part of the world when it comes to you know diversity and, and what we've got on offer. So to have this sort of little slice of the Mediterranean sort of growing sort of you know there is is, is really wonderful. I mentioned the Mediterranean. I mean, I love I love some of the more spectacular orchids. There's 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 a group of orchids called the lizard orchids called Himantoglossum. These things have got really sort of odd flowers, which the, the, the labellum is basically a load of tendrils and sort of corked spirals and all sorts of things. It's not entirely certain what purpose of these things are. I've often wondered if the, the tendrils of small, you know, sort of wingless insects to sort of to climb up. But, you know, orchids themselves, they are, that they do try and entice things. So if you've got this big wavy, sort of interesting looking thing, I guess that in, in many respects sort of entices the pollinator over. But lizard orchids are difficult to describe. That They're often quite large as well. You know, a, lot, a lot of the orchids are, are small. They're, they're less than a foot tall. You know, if, if you find a really good-sized lizard orchid, they, these things can be you know, upwards of a metre in height, big, ch- thick, chunky stems. If you come across a big lizard orchid, these massive corkscrew spiral flowers you know, with over 100 flowers on it, it literally looks like an alien that's that's demanding to meet its meet meet your earth leader. Phenomenal looking things. Yeah, you really really crazy, quite imposing thing to look at. To the point where I remember introducing my three year old daughter to one. One came up in Leicestershire a few years ago, and she was actually scared to go near it. Yeah, I said, you yeah, it's safe to touch, and she she literally thought it was going to bite her. So as I said, you know, what a, what a wonderfully imposing thing. But yeah, I mean, all, all orchids, I mean, some of my friends often joke that the smaller and greener the orchid is, the more I tend to get excited about it. And I think when you look at an orchid, you, you can look at the showy orchids, you can look at these big vandas and things in somebody's greenhouse. They, they are incredibly spectacular with these big frilly flowers, which, which you know, incredible colours. And I, I really respect them. But we've spoken so much about the, these intricate, you know, adaptations and you know, sort of solutions for a, for a busy world that a lot of the orchids employ. And I mean, I can't get my head over you know, your Epipodium ghost orchid, which sits underground for years and years at a time, going through this, this fairly complicated series of growth cycles, you know, with these you know, supposedly complicated interactions with its fungal partners. I mean, it, it, it has a particular requirement for the soil it lives in, it has a particular requirement for what fungal partner it has. It doesn't like being disturbed. It doesn't like too much light. It, I mean, you th- look at it, you think, wow, how does this thing actually work? But it does, and it works beautifully, and it works so well. It's quite a widespread plant, but in its in its areas, it, it is it is very delicate and fragile. So as I said, I, I have a certain sort of love for things like that. As I said, I could I could probably reel off about fifty species and tell you each one of them is my favourite for some particular way, <laughs> but. I, I do love I do love my I do love my hemantoglossums and I, I do love my I do love my bee orchids. This year, hopefully, I'm going to go and look at some more cephalanthras. I'm planning a family holiday to Crete in May. There's a, there's a highly endangered orchid that grows there, something called cephalanthra cucullata. It's a relic species. It's it's endemic to Crete. It's very similar to something that grows across your know, sort of Eastern Europe and and uh, Western Asia called cephalanthra epipactoides. It's one of the spurred cephalanthras. And I actually went there in 2018. Lovely chap. He's sadly no longer with us. A guy called Horst Kreshmar gave me a lot of his um, site data from the past. And, and sadly, a lot of the sites I came across, very hot year that year. But three of the sites I visited had been lost to forest fires. 
and the other, one of the sites was completely full of goats. They, they'd moved all their, their their goats down because it was so so dry that year, and they'd scoffed everything. And the other two sites that I visited, actually, no, there's there's three more sites. Two of the sites I visited, they'd, they'd flowered and that were in seed set, and then another one of the sites which was supposed to be the you know, the actual reserve where they're sort of being protected. Very very difficult to get to. It's on this. Uh, this sort of, I, I, I use the term road very liberally. And there'd been a lot of flash flooding a couple of months prior. And I actually came across this enormous sort of ravine across where the road used to be. And I'd already put my hire car through quite a lot. I remember reading in the clause that if the hire car gets beached off road, you are effectively liable for the entire cost of the vehicle, should it not be retrievable. And I just thought, wow, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to risk uh, this Nissan Pulsar for a, uh, yeah, for this, and I was I was about twenty kilometres away from where I needed to be, so I, I gave up on it at that point. So I've I've got I've got unfinished business in Crete, and the other hire car company that I booked with, they told me to pick the vehicle up at eleven p.m., but didn't tell me that they closed at nine thirty. So when I went to collect the vehicle, they weren't there, and then because I wasn't there to pick the vehicle up, they charged me for the entire hire of the vehicle without a refund. That was fun. I'm never using them again. And as I said, Crete itself was was. Uh, it was um, it was so hot when I was out there, so I've got unfinished business with that. So if you ask me in, in June what my favourite orchid is, it's probably going to be Cephalanthrocucolata because I've been wanting to see it for years and years and years now. And when I actually did go and try and find it, I was let down so badly. So if I just see one and one good one, that'll be my favourite for a while. That's funny that you mentioned unfinished business on Crete because I got unfinished business on Crete too. There's this one walk that my wife and I wanted to do. I can't remember what it's called, but you like Samaria Gorge. That's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. believe it or not, your kef- well, well, I say your kephalanthras, my kephalanthras grow on the Samaria Gorge. And there was so much that went wrong with my trip to Crete. I mean, I could, I could probably have an entire podcast longer than this one talking about why my trip to Crete in 2018 was such a nightmare. But, but, but funny enough, I love the place and I can't wait to go back. That's the thing about Crete. Although it stressed me out immensely, it, it, I just had such a fantastic time ignoring n- ignoring the bad parts. But yeah, the Samaria Gorge, on the day that I was there, it was so hot that I actually bumped into a police officer about halfway down. And he, he told me, he says, listen, we're telling people to go back up to the top. Too hot today. And I said, well, I've got lots of water with me. You know, what's so bad? And he says, unfortunately, somebody died earlier today of heat stroke. Oh, wow. Somebody actually died on the walk that day. And I thought, Wow. It, that's a good reason to go back. So, I mean, I don't know if this is funny or this is sad, but I was, I was making my way back up, and believe it or not, I ran out of water. So I stopped at one of the wells to get get more water. And the thing is, I mean, it was so dry. I found I found some macaphlanthras, and I also found some, something else I was looking for, something called Epipactis uh, cretica, which is uh, I may have mentioned Epipactis earlier. But I mean, they're part of my. They're, I mean, they're a group of plants. I just absolutely, I just love Epipactis. They're a group of hellebreens. They're pretty dull-looking things. They're, they're, we, we talk about being specialists. These things have got very specialist adaptations. But Cretica is part of a group, part of a species um, aggregate called Epipactis phylanthes. And phylanthes is... I'm actually writing a short paper on Epipactis phylanthes at the moment. It's, it's a hugely sort of... What's the word I'm looking for? It's a hugely sort of morphologically expressive species Phylanthes got all these sort of ecotypes and sort of you know, morphotypes, so to speak, of it, which which are 
that these variants are all incredibly different looking things. Epimaxis cretica is, is very closely related to phylanthes. I, I found a load growing on the Samaria Gorge around this well. I was getting all excited, but they weren't in flower. They'd, they'd been and gone. And this guy came past me, this really old guy. He was enormously fat, which is incredibly hypocritical thing, save from my part for the most time. So I'm, I'm quite a big guy. But this guy was just enormous and he was on a camel. And this camel was going down this slope. I mean, parts of the Samaria Gorge literally, mate, they're, they're 45 degree slopes or more. This camel was going by, this guy on the back of it. And I, I just remember thinking, this place is utter madness. But all, all, all we've got around here is is is, is strange animals that but this, that's it this camel stopped and started eating one of these epipactis orchids that was on the side of the path i wanted to shout at this camel and go oi you're eating an endangered plant but i didn't want to risk the wrath of this this guy on top of us and i just remember thinking crete's mad you've got these crazy animals everywhere that want to eat all the orchids yeah and i said i made it back up to the top and i, I, I went to um, it was a very long drive crete itself is a very long island i think it's 120 miles long it's about 30 miles wide. And I, I was literally staying on the other end of the island. I remember getting back to my car about four o'clock, put it into my sat-nav, and it said I wasn't going to get back until 10pm. I remember thinking, I'm on a little island in the, in the middle of nowhere. How is it going to take me six hours to drive back home? So I absolutely belted it as, as quickly as I could safely. And I, I did it in sort of like five hours, 40. I remember, I remember thinking, is that some kind of victory or not? As I said, I've got some unfinished business with Crete. I really have. Samaria Gorge is, is just one of them. Because when you get down to the bottom, that cove, I've seen the photos, it's stunning. But it's it's one hell of a it's one hell of a walk down, let alone to make it back up again. That's it. I did half of it in a, in uh, in afternoon and um I was pretty tired by the time I got back to the car. And then the next day I went and did another gorge as well. I did the Zaros Gorge and made my way up from the monastery to about as high as I could possibly get. And I realised I'd made an ascent of uh not far off uh, couple of thousand meters you know it's 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 one heck of a uh, sort of couple of thousand yards even it's one heck of a climb in those conditions thankfully it gets a bit cooler as you get towards the top but i mean the, the temperature that day i think when i got back to the car late afternoon the, the, the temperature gauge of the car said it was 38 degrees uh, which probably nothing to you but to me that is uh that's like double <laughs> double the temperature of a good spring day here in the uk <laughs> <laughs> Well, when it gets up to 35, that's when we'd probably call that a hot day, I reckon. Yeah. Oh so 30, it depends, though. Actually, if it's spring and it's you know just starting to warm up, 30 is pretty hot. But once you get used to it, yeah, no, it's, you're, not, you're not really complaining until it gets up to 35 usually over here. And that's in Melbourne, too. In Queensland, it can get much worse in Queensland. God, you don't want to go to Queensland, mate, in summer. <laughs> well, my mum, I mentioned my mum earlier. I mean, she lived in Perth. And she said that, like, coming from Coventry, uh, which is sort of like centre of the UK, in the middle of winter to uh, Perth in the middle of summer, and she said was the, the biggest, the biggest sort of shock ever. And uh, you know, I've always said I want to visit. She said, Richard, if you visit, if you visit and, and go and see this place, <laughs> you've got to go in the winter. Yes. <laughs> which is funny because if I, well, you know, I say if, when I do make my way over to Australia, you know, I'll, I'll do it when the kids. I'll, I'll, take the family when they're old enough to appreciate it that they will unfortunately have to tolerate my my love of orchids but i'll be going when the orchids are at their best mm. so hopefully the temperatures won't be too much for me <laughs> no well do you know what when you go to crete you'll get to see some eucalypts anyway so yeah oh you'll be halfway there <laughs> 
So, Richard, I always like to ask our guests, is there anything else you'd like the listeners to know about? Yeah, I, I guess I guess with all these things, I mean, or- orchids have always sort of garnered a lot of uh, lot of attention. Yeah, I'm just looking at my bookshelf around in the background, and I've got I've got literally got hundreds of books on plants, and about half of them are books on orchids. And it's interesting mm. how some things will sort of take so much attention compared to everything else. And I think one one thing about orchids is, is a lot of people know me for my love of orchids, but it's not just the orchids that kind of really excite me. Really, I mean, I'm massively into ferns. I'm not as I'm not as good with ferns as I'm with orchids, and still make the occasional sort of schoolboy error with them. But I love my alpines as well. I really love plants that have got sort of yeah sort of specialist qualities to them. But the orchids, although they sort of get a lot of good attention, I mean, I'm, I'm I've, I've been involved in some of the conservation. You know, of, of various orchids over the years, I've I've played a role in in, in reintroducing some to some areas, and unfortunately, the orchids do get a lot of negative attention. You know, there's the problem with collectors. There's people who just go and pick them because they like the look of them. And they're heavily threatened in many respects. And yeah, any anybody listening to this podcast, I'd just encourage them just to sort of think about what orchids they might have nearby. Because yeah, if 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 you mention an orchid to just the average person on the street. They'll think of some exotic thing in bloom and some you know, tranquil location in, in some you know, sort of rainforest paradise. That's some of the orchids. And as we touched on earlier, you've got, you've got thousands of species of orchids that grow in those areas. But you're never too far away from an orchid, even in quite a built-up area. You'll find an orchid that's uh, sort of adapted or, or found its niche in some respect, way, shape or form. And I'd encourage people to sort of you know, pick up a book Go and get a local guidebook. Go and read about them. Figure out what what you know, figure out the magic that I think makes them special, and, and go and look for them, and, and try and become aware of why that orchid is there, and and, and why it's you know, why it's so special. Because we talk about the, earlier about the, you know, the the habitats in which orchids grow in, they can grow pretty much everywhere. But by definition, if an orchid is growing somewhere, it will be growing in a special habitat. They're indicators of, of the bigger picture. So if, if like me, you, you, you don't have a problem with sort of going off to some foreign country to go and go and look for an orchid, it's not necessarily about looking for the orchid itself. It's about appreciating everything about it, what makes that area so special. And, you know, just taking into account you know, the, the variation in terms of you know, the way they grow, the, the, the requirements, the pollinators they need, the specific soil components the amount of light the amount of water all sorts have a look at what's around your orchid as well and see if there's anything else there that's special because not all orchid species are special uh, some are but all orchid species are an indicator that there is something special in the area even if it's not the orchid itself and that that's something i really wish a lot of people who are interested in orchids took more note of visiting sites over the last, there seems to be a bit of an orchid mania going on in the UK at the moment. You know, people sort of, you know, frantically running around with a tick list of, you know, I want to look at this and I want to look at that and I've got to tick this species off. And it's a bit sad because there's some parts of the world that I've known very well for years and years and they're being absolutely trashed by, you know, 30, 40, 50 people coming in, in massive great hiking boots and wellies and whatnot with their picnics and backpacks just to see a single plant 
there is a much bigger picture to the world than, than the orchids. If the orchids were to vanish off the face of the earth tomorrow, it'd be a terrible shame, but it, it really wouldn't be the end of the world. You know, th- there's, there's not much out there that is hugely dependent on an orchid for its survival. You know, maybe a couple of hummingbirds require to get their, their, their nutritional needs from the nectar. But if you take a look at the orchids themselves, they're very much takers. They're deceitful. They, they, they've got a place in the food chain, but there are very few examples of where an orchid will actually give back. So if you're going to go and look <laughs> at an orchid, try not to do what an orchid does and take, take, take. Try and, <laughs> try and give something back because I think that's the most important thing. I really do. Mate, that is a beautiful message. Thank you so much for another excellent episode. There is, Macy. If you see something popping up in your yard that you suspect might be an orchid, upload it into the iNaturalist app and see if you can get a positive ID. Check the show notes for a link to a Twitter thread Richard's going to put together just for us with photos of weird and wonderful orchids. Please follow the Plants Grow Here podcast on your favourite listening app and share this episode with somebody that needs to learn about orchids.